This is Top Landing Gear. Hello and welcome to Top Landing Gear Full Flaps and to the second stage of our Full Flaps interview with Ian Whittle, son of Sir Frank, the man who invented the jet engine. Ian told us so much in part one, you'd hardly believe there'd be more. But there is, and we couldn't let an opportunity like this pass us by. So here, once again, is Ian talking to James Cartner and me, Rob Curling, at his Surrey home, almost 85 years to the day since the first running of Sir Frank Whittle's revolutionary invention. So, Ian, as far as your father is concerned, May the 15th, 1941 was the day of reckoning, which was the first flight of the Gloucester E2839 with his engine, the first time that this had happened uh, in, in Britain. And I think Jerry Sayers was the pilot. What was that day like for your father? Well, it's, it was a beastly day. Cloudy, wet, dreary. <laughs> you can just imagine. <laughs> low cloud. <laughs> and he'd come up to Cranwell because they decided to do the flight from Cranwell. Mm -hmm. And um, he'd been there when they were doing the taxi trials, by the way, in 8th of, and 9th of April, a little bit earlier. And um, now he's up at Cranwell and they're going to do the first flight. But the weather was, they said, oh, weather's rubbish, we'll have to scrub for the day. Mm -hmm. So he got into his car and drove back to Lutterworth, where his office was at Browns Over Hall. And then the telephone rang, and he said, oh, the weather's getting better now, we think we might be able to do the flying. So he gets back to his car and drives all the way back to Cranwell, which is a long way yeah. to Lutterworth. He gets back there, and he's, he's a wing commander by now, and he's, um, he's there, and uh, they get the engine going, and it lines up, and it takes off and flies. Mm. And I mean, that engine, <clears throat> that W1 engine, the air ministry had said, oh yes, it's good enough, we'll use it for flight testing. But they said, before you do that, of course, we have to do 25 hours of bench testing. <laughs> so they get the engine, put it on the bench or whatever, on a, mm. you know, I don't know what you test these things in. And they ran it for 25 hours, stringent testing, full power, back to idle, up to full power, back to idle, run it at, at, at sensible RPM for a bit, and da-da-da-da-da, check the temperatures and pressures. And, and eventually, after 25 hours of stopping and starting, they had an inspection of the engine, and it was perfectly all right. Mm -hmm. They said, OK, you can install it in the, in the aeroplane, and you can fly the aeroplane and do 10 hours of testing before we think it would be wise to inspect the engine. <laughs> so it did. It did 10 hours and 40 minutes, actually, I think, uh, of flight testing. So he did the first flight you've just been talking about on the 15th of May 1941, and it flew for 17 minutes. It disappeared behind the clouds and buzzed around whilst... And they weren't interested in the engine <laughs> no. because the engine was proven technology. Yeah. The pilot, Jerry Sayer, was interested in the control of the aeroplane. He wanted to know breakout forces mm -hmm. for elevator, ailerons, rudder... And he wanted to feel stability. He wanted to see if there was any uh, porpoising 
uh, any any problems with the with the rudder, you know, and so he was checking the airframe and the controls. What sort of speeds did they get out on the first the first run? Nothing very much. Yeah. Uh, probably two hundred knots or something yeah. like that. Yeah, I so think nothing very far. You you read so many silly reports of the <laughs> thing doing hell for leather on the first flight. It was completely daft. Yeah. I mean, what test pilot in the right mind would try and... And he took off with a very low... took off with derated thrust. Yes. I mean, you take off with derated yes. thrust today. Yes. And I used to, and I was mm. an airline pilot. But, you know, he they derated the thrust. They, they mm. took off with 860 pounds of thrust for the first flight. They could have used 1,240 pounds, mm. but what's the point? Yeah. Because the aeroplane would fly on yeah. 860 pounds of thrust, so fly it like that mm-hmm. at modest speeds and yeah. see if the airframe's okay. Mm-hmm. And that's all he did. And he put the undercarriage up, and when he came into land, he remembered to put the undercarriage <laughs> down, which is always handy. Well, it was a fairly new thing, concept of retractable <laughs> undercarriage, wasn't it? I mean, uh, it'd yes. been around a bit, I suppose. Oh, yeah, the Spitfires yeah. have been around. Yeah, yeah. And, and hurricanes. There were lots of aircraft there. When did your father first get to fly the jet that he had invented? 1945. Not till 1945. No, not till 1945. One time he got into the E2839 and he was going to fly it. And yes. He got permission to fly it, but he got in and somebody rang up and said, oh, for God's sake, don't let him fly it. We don't <laughs> want to lose both the aeroplane and the inventor. <laughs> <laughs> so, so an airman came up to him and said, sir, sir, sorry, sorry, um, <sighs> Form 707 or whatever it is, Form 700. He said, uh, he said the, the, the airplane snagged. It's uh, not allowed. It can't fly. Yeah. Oh, so he gets out of the cockpit, very oh, disappointed. Oh gosh! Never, never flew the. That seems so unfair, doesn't yeah. it? So by now, had Churchill become aware of the potential of, of the jet yes, aircraft? Yes, he had. By then, he had. He became aware. Of course, he knew. He was briefed. Knew what was going on. Air, you know, the airplane was ordered to be built by Gloucester's in 1939. And then they ordered the fighter to be built in 1940, what became the Meteor. Mm -hmm. So Gloucester's, George Carter, the chief designer at Gloucester's, was responsible for the design of the E-2839. And it's E-28 because it's experimental aeroplane number 28. 39 means the year it was ordered Uh, by the Air Ministry. mm -hmm. So it's E-28, diagonal 39. So Frank Whittle and George Carter put their heads together with the design of the airframe and decided, like having a nose wheel, for example, instead mm-hmm. of a tail wheel, so that it had a, you know, the, the oh. thrust vector was horizontal mm-hmm. instead of being as it would be in a yeah. Spitfire. And uh, he, uh, they collaborated with all aspects of the build of the airframe. And it was a terribly good little air- aircraft. Mm. Beautiful airplane and twin engine, obviously. That, no, that no, was the, this is a single, the E28. Oh, the E28, sorry, yeah, sorry, yeah. I thought you were talking about the, the Meteor. The yeah, Meteor was, yeah. uh, was a twin. Yeah. So the, the development of the Meteor then was g- given the go ahead. I mean, throughout all of this, the problem was getting companies like Rolls Royce, for example, to, to, to develop and build the engines because they were up to their eyes in, in trying to yeah. produce Merlins. and develop enough Merlins, mm. weren't they? That's Which right. is they were. what was really saving us They at were that time. called upon, well, they got together with Rovers, um, uh, Ernest Hives and, and one of the Wilkes brothers got their heads together up in Lancashire and they, Rolls-Royce agreed that they should take over the jet engine and they took it over in April 1943. And from then onwards... Development was fast and furious, mm-hmm. despite the fact that they were up to their ears, as you say, 
to, uh, producing merlins, mm -hmm. uh, uh, more advanced merlins all the time, yeah. because the merlin improved and improved mm -hmm. as the years went by. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Wonderful engine, of course, but using fuel which we were getting from the USA. Yes, yeah. indeed. And um, so, yeah, I, I, when, once Rolls-Royce took over in April 1943, things really began to improve. And father, I mean, he <laughs> so glad to get away from Rovers. Yeah. Yes. And so happy yeah. that Rolls-Royce took over. And he got on fine with Ernest Hives. Yes. And the other, oh, of course, there was dear old... Um, Stanley what, Hooker? Yes, Stanley Hooker, of mm -hmm. course, mm -hmm. who was such a, a great supporter of Frank Whittle yeah. and, and such a wonderful uh, engineer, of course. Um, so or everything really improved. It, it yeah. was wonderful. For well, he, he, Hooker went on to develop the Pegasus engine, didn't he, for the, the Vector Thrust? Yes, the that's Harriet. right, yeah, yeah. he did, yeah. because he went over to Bristol. So he and Hives had a bit of a fallout at mm. some point, mm -hmm. and he moved over to Bristol, but... He, he had done such good work. I mean, the, the Neen engine and the Derwent, those two engines, which we gave to the Russians. Mm -hmm. Well, we didn't. We sold them to the Russians. Oh, which they put in their MiGs. Yeah. What? Is that what they put in the MiG-15? Or their, yes, their the MiG own version of oh, it? Oh, the MiG-15 was powered by a Rolls-Royce engine, a Rolls-Royce <laughs> Neen, which was a Whittle engine anyway. Yes. And its airframe was German. So, <laughs> so it, the MiG-15 was a damn good airplane. <laughs> yeah. And so obviously the um, the patent had expired. Yeah. So your so your father had no real sort of say on 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 how it, how it was developed, other than as an advisor to the, the company to Rolls Royce, for example. So did did Rolls Royce repatent it or anything, or was, was once the patent has expired, is it then up for? A... Not quite like that. When when Powerjets was formed in 1936, mm -hmm. they then started to surround everything with patents because right. uh, Pat Johnson who had been a pal of my father's at Central Flying School yeah. and who'd helped him with the initial patent, mm -hmm. he came on to power jets. He left the Royal Air Force, yeah. joined in power jets and became a, a, a key member of the team. Mm -hmm. And he looked after the patents. Right. And father patented the turbofan, yes. reheat yeah. and other ideas to mm -hmm. do with the turbojet mm -hmm. to try and defend it. Yeah. But mm -hmm. nevertheless, Rover saw their way mm -hmm. around yeah. And uh, to, to, to still do... Rolls-Royce, of course, were also um, guilty of the same kind of thing. But mm -hmm. somehow or other, uh, my father would refer to Ernest Hives as, as a... An, he was the managing director at Rolls-Royce, mm -hmm. you know, as, as an honest rogue. <laughs> you know, because he was, he, he was. He was... OK, he wasn't a rogue, of course, but he yeah. was... He was he, he had to look after the yeah. interests of Rolls-Royce. Uh, and they were keen on making money on the turbojet. And Powerjet was eventually nationalised, wasn't it? It was nationalised in January 1944, and that right. was a disaster. Right, yeah. And uh, that, of course, again set my poor father back. I mm -hmm. mean, he became a very unwell man, actually. Right. Um, but in 1944, they, they paid very little money for Powerjets, mm -hmm. and they nationalised it, and then they just... From then onwards, they just stuffed it around. Because your father offered to give up his shares for free if they nationalised it, was that...? No, oh, that's that... no, no, that's not quite right. Right. Uh, he he was very much a socialist in those days. Yeah. And he thought that nationalisation was a good idea mm -hmm. uh, for, a, for for something like the turbojet because he felt it's a national thing. Mm -hmm. As far as his patents were concerned, he did eventually give all his patent rights to the nation. Right. But that came after. Yeah. That came later. Okay. That sort of didn't arise mm -hmm. at the time of the nationalisation. Right. 
I think I'm right in saying. Yeah. Okay. He he was actually sent off to the USA, wasn't he? Because yes. I think partly because we needed the capacity, we needed greater capacity to produce these these jet engines. But the USA didn't weren't really working on the jet engines, so they welcomed him with open arms, and he was. He was fated by the Americans, particularly GE. Yes, they loved him, didn't they? Well, what happened was that Hap Arnold, who was running the United States Air Force, asked Churchill or somebody if... Well, he said, look, we want part of this turbojet. He knew about the first flight. Mm-hmm. He actually saw, I think, the taxi trials at um, Brockworth in Gloucester. I'm not sure. But he, anyway, he was, he was keeping his finger on the pulse. And he knew that we British were on the cusp of flying an aeroplane in, in, in early 41, and he wanted that technology over to the United States. We in this country wanted to let the, the technology move out of... because we were being bombed to hell, mm-hmm. and we, we were very worried that there'd be some bombs on power jets and Frank Whittle, and the whole darn thing would get all blown away. So we were looking for somewhere for a turbojet to be developed in parallel, and we were actually looking very seriously at Canada. Mm-hmm. But Hap Arnold, General Hap Arnold, said, no, oi, we want it over here in the States. And so we wanted the States to join in on our side. They mm-hmm. still hadn't yes. joined in then. They, we were, okay, they were supplying us yeah. lots of lovely stuff which we needed, but they weren't in on our side. So they didn't come in on our side until December or something mm-hmm. like that. So in 1941, earlier 1941, we agreed to let them have the W1 engine. So the, the engine we'd used for the taxi trials at Gloucester, which wasn't flight-worthy, it was a bit beaten up, not the pristine one we used for the flying, we gave that to the Americans. It went off in, a, in the Bombay of a Liberator <laughs> with a couple of technicians freezing to death in the bloody bomb, <laughs> hoping that no silly prat would pull the lever and open the bomb bag. Give it to one engine. Yes. <laughs> and they went over to the States with it, and we, so we gave it to GE, mm-hmm. and GE began, looked at it and began to develop their own. Oh, and they also carried with them the plans for the W2, the next mm-hmm. engine on, more powerful version. And so GE was set to work on the turbojet in 90, October 1941, the engine went mm-hmm. over, and so they started work. The father went over in May 1942. It may have been June the 1st by the time he got there, because I know he tried to set off in May, and the weather was horrible, mm. and he got stuck at Shannon um, before he could cross the Atlantic for ooh, nearly a week, I think, mm. hanging about in a hotel, and he had to have, have a false name. They told him, well, you better not call yourself Wing Commander Whittle. You should call yourself Mr. Whistle or something. <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember what No one name. would have guessed. No, no, no. no. He, 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 he kept forgetting. So he, he'd oh, no. bring him room services and he'd sign his name, <laughs> Frank Whittle. <laughs> anyway, he gets across to the USA and he spent from May or beginning of June, the whole of June and July and into August, he was over there helping GE and co., with their development. And I think, and I have no proof of it, but I think he will have discussed the turbofan with them. Mm. We British, of course, didn't do anything about the turbofan, did we? (laughs) Nothing at all. We did a little bit with reheat, but not a lot. But he'd had those ideas Mm. way back, between 1930 and 1933. Anyway, 
the Americans were, of course, naturally the first off with the turbofan engine mm. in the early 1960s mm. with the GEJ, whatever it was, 39 or something. Yeah. And, um, and we caught up after that. That's when the RB211 came out. Mm -hmm. yeah. 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 Oh, was this pretty much, do you think, ostensibly what led to our, as in so any other, many other walks of, of life in, in British industry, where we lost our lead? Because yes. we had the lead globally at oh, that absolutely. stage. We, we lost our way. Look at Rolls Royce mm -hmm. with the, have the Dart engine I've been talking to you about. Mm -hmm. yeah. What what's happens there then? It's the Pratt and Whitney PT6 taken over. Yeah. They're, they're ubiquitous. Yeah. No Rolls Royce turbo props that I know of that mm -hmm. are running around these days. Maybe yeah. some, but I don't know of them. Mm -hmm. So back to the the Meteor eventually gets airborne in uh, 1943, goes into service in 1944. By which time. There's not an awful lot of the war left. I, it, I mean, did it make a difference having the Meteor? It was really used ultimately to, to take down the V1 rockets, I think. Yes, it didn't do make any difference whatsoever to the outcome of the war. No. None whatsoever. Neither, of course, did the ME262. No. But it was operational before the ME262. What really annoys me is you go to the Science Museum and you look at a, a big thing they got written there, and it says, the ME-262 is the only operational jet fighter in the Second World War. Ooh. doesn't even mention the British. Gosh, <laughs> the meteor. <laughs> of the market. We'll have to, we'll have to write to the corrections department. For the... <laughs> this, is, this is a publicly funded museum, Gosh. and they've got rubbish written up yeah. there. They oh, have no idea. That's mm. shocking. Mm. Goodness <laughs> me. And so I'm just wondering, by 1945... Thankfully, the war is over eventually. I know your father was continued to look at developing a jet, and I think it was probably the vampire for for deck operations because we still had the the war in the Pacific to look at, and getting jet aircraft out into the Pacific, they'd need to be able to fly off a carrier. Yes, he was trying to get a turbofan going. Ah, he was working on what they call the LR one, long range one, and this was a fan, a turbofan engine that he was working on. But of course, the government cancelled that in 1946, mm -hmm. uh, after the war. But during the war, he's working on a turbofan, the idea being to put it into a bomber and make across the Pacific. Ah. But, oh no, uh, he didn't get the support it needed. And of course, he was also working on a, a W2700, which one of his engines, with an aft fan, mm -hmm. similar to the GE engine, which powered the Convair 990. Oh, yes. I forget what they call that engine. Yes. But anyway, it, it had a fan blades on, around the periphery of the mm -hmm. turbine. And that bypass air then went through a kind of, what, the equivalent of reheat. Mm -hmm. Anyway, this, this was going to power the Miles 52 oh, yes. supersonic experimental aeroplane. Mm -hmm. Another project that the government cancelled. <laughs> <laughs> it's just so mind-boggling. This is 1950s technology. What we British do? Yes, we, we shoot. We got our feet, we got a gun, and we keep shooting at it. Like we miss some of the time. <laughs> um, yeah, that, immensely frustrating for your father and, and many others. But I, I want to go back to his first flight in a jet aircraft and, and how it came about. So it would have been in a Gloucester Meteor. Yes, it was a Gloucester Meteor. With, the first flight was with the... Um, I'm not sure whether, which the engine was as I sit here, but it was. I know he flew the one with the early Derwent. Oh, right. Um, whether he flew one with the W2, I'm not 100% sure. It was the W2 
2500 was developed by Rolls-Royce as the RB37, which became, which was the Derwent. So it still had the Whittle tag. So for oh, yeah. him, that well, must w have been... The was, yeah. was very much a power jets engine. Yeah. They developed that at power jets. Yeah. Rolls-Royce didn't really bother with it no. because they had got ideas for the Derwent, yeah. which was straight through combustion. Yeah, which is a tremendous improvement. Okay. I mean, Father wanted to go through. He had the W two Y, which was going to be straight through combustion, mm -hmm. but he never had the funds yeah. and time to develop it, so it didn't. Rover, give at least give Rover their due. Yes, Adrian Lombard at Rover had developed a system with straight through combustion mm -hmm. which was a great improvement but it's what power jets were working on anyway mm -hmm. so rovers straight through combustion ideas went to rolls-royce mm -hmm. rolls-royce adopted that and produced the, the early derwent engine which it's is a bit confusing you see because when they built the neen later on or the neen was under development at that time under stanley hooker yeah. but when the neen a, a, a scaled-down version of the Neen was then called the Derwent Mark III, <laughs> yeah. so, which is confusing. Yeah. But what was it like for your father to, to finally get his hands on a jet aircraft? This was the engine that he had developed, and finally he was now flying it. I mean, he'd only flown piston-engine aircraft up to that point, which right. are noisy, they're bumpy, and now he was he was actually experiencing yeah. everything that he had been working on for the oh, previous 20 years. It was a huge thrill yes. for him. Mm -hmm. he, when he was officially... Uh, uh, no, wait a minute. Did he officially... I think actually he wasn't really supposed to fly. This isn't That's a right. high-speed yes, test yes, event, yes, is yes, it? Yes, yes. He was supposed to do <laughs> high-speed taxiing, and oops, by mistake, <laughs> oh, the airplane went up into the air, and he thought, oh dear, here I am, I might as well stay up and go around the circuit. So he did a circuit and landed. But yeah, the feeling he had, the quietness, mm. the total lack of any vibration, mm. beautiful view yeah. out of the cockpit. Instead of a dirty great engine and propeller and yeah. stuff, he's got a lovely view out of the cockpit. It's nice and it swings along through the air. He was very impressed by his own success <laughs> yes. at that moment. Yeah. And then he flew again when um, they they in, uh, later on they were doing the they were going to go for the world airspeed record yes. at Hearn Bay and the weather turned rubbish as British weather so often does <laughs> and so all the newspaper reporters and everything were all there and chats with their cameras and whatnot on the cliff waiting to watch this mm -hmm. aeroplane whiz by and of course it didn't turn up. And this getting... was Bill Waterton flying that was it uh, I think? Yes I think so. I, I have like to that. say I'm not sure who the pilot yeah. was. Mm -hmm. yeah. It could have been Bill. Anyway um they rang up Frank Whittle. They said, I say, sir, would you come and fly a meteor uh, up and down the high-speed run, you see? Said, oh, 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 all right. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, amazing. <laughs> and, uh, and, and he gets into this meteor, which had the, the Derwent three, of course, and um, he flew up and down the Hearn Bay. Now, I was a little boy at home. I, I was about nine years of age. And... Uh, I knew Dad had gone off and was going to fly an aeroplane and go very fast. That's about all I knew. And um, he, he flew up and down the, the, the high-speed run. Mm -hmm. But, of course, he was down at about 50 feet, and he was going pretty fast. But he didn't concentrate much on his instruments because, you know, when you're that low and you're going that fast, yeah, you tend know. to look out yeah. of the window. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> so um, he, uh, 
when he came home and came in through the front door, I said, hello, Danny, how fast did you go? And he said, well, I said, about 450. I don't know if he meant 450 miles an hour or 450 knots. Mm-hmm. I should imagine it was knots, mm-hmm. because knowing my father, he would think knots, yeah. he would think miles an hour. So it was probably 450 knots. But he said, about 450. I said, oh, is that all? And t- <laughs> turned my back on him and walked off to go and play with my Hornby Railway. <laughs> <laughs> so he'd seen it all come to to life. Do, yeah. do you think he felt that his his invention and his his vision had been fulfilled by this stage? Yes, but he just saw it so slow, so 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 slow, yeah. so so disappointing. Mm. I mean, they they cancelled his turbo fan engine mm-hmm. they cancelled his aft fan with reheat engine they cancelled the m52 got george miles the designer to send the plans over to the united states of america mm-hmm. which included a full flying tailplane for ex- mm-hmm. which is very important for the bell x1 mm-hmm. rocket plane and um they done this done that done the other and really he was sick of it and mm-hmm. fed up with them and tired and and it had three nervous breakdowns. He was in a, his health was shattered yeah. after all this. So in 1946, he resigned from Power Jets and, mm-hmm. and basically went back to the RAF and said, well, here I am. I'm an Air Commodore. What do you want to do with me? <laughs> and they scratched their heads. They didn't know what to do with him. So they sent him off on lecture tours and stuff, mm-hmm. which was OK. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't see very much of him because he was still quite busy. Then in 1948, they said, well, you're not fit enough to hold flying category, so you'd better leave. Uh, no, they didn't say you'd better leave the RAF. He could have actually stayed on. But he said, well, if I'm not fit to hold a flying category, he said, I might as well yeah. retire. Mm. So he retired in 1948 as a knight. He was knighted by King George VI, and he was given a reward a very good reward of £100,000. Doesn't sound much today, but in those days there was a lot of money and it was tax free. Mm -hmm. So he was given that award, given a knighthood, which is valueless, um, but but still, he's proud. And I mean, my brother and I were delighted to see King George (laughs) pop the sword onto his shoulder. It was great. Um, And then uh, he, he then becomes a civilian, and he decides to act as a consultant for BOAC because they were going to introduce the, yes. the mm-hmm. comet. Yep. So he helped with the introduction of the comet. Mm-hmm. And I was looking into his 1949 diary. And remember the comet had a problem with square windows? Yeah. Yes. Well, I was looking into his 1949 diary and uh, I saw he's written an entry there and it says... Uh, I was worried about, or well, worse to the effect, worried about the square windows in this Mark I comet. And I suggested, he said to Bishop, who is the mm-hmm. chief designer at de Havilland's, he said, I suggested um, a, a lattice work of stainless steel wire against the pressure panel of each window to give it extra strength. But Bishop turned down the idea. Not that that made the slightest difference mm-hmm. because the cracks that appeared in that fuselage didn't start at a window no. per se. So uh, 
it wouldn't have wouldn't have saved the aeroplane. But still, it, I found it very interesting yeah, yeah. to notice that typical of my father yes. to think, yes. oh, wait a minute, square windows, windows yeah. 8.5 psi pressure differential yeah. on the fuselage, Gosh. is this a good idea? Yeah. No, wow. it's not. They ought to be oval or round. Mm. So he was on to it. Wow. Nothing met... escaped him, did it? No, he's typical of the man. Yeah. Um, were, yeah. you, were you aware growing up as a child that he was doing something quite special? No, mm-hmm. no, because you see, in 1939, when I was a little twat of about four, <laughs> four or five, four years of age, they made it secret. Yeah. They, mm-hmm. they, in June 1939, the Air Ministry finally woke up to yeah. the fact, because the jet engine was running for a long yeah. time, and they were looking at it, and the Director of Scientific Research said, oh, this is a good idea, <laughs> ten years after Frank Whittle had proposed the idea. And he went back to the air minister. They said, oh, well, we'd better make it secret. Mm-hmm. This was in June 1939. So they then make the turbojet secret. Too late. Everybody <laughs> knows about it. it. Yeah. The Germans know all about it. <laughs> and they were just about to fly an aeroplane yeah. themselves. And then they don't become secret. So, of course... I, as a little boy, I'm not going to be told what he's doing. All mm. I saw was Daddy going to work every day in his uniform, and he used to have a pistol in here see, yeah. because of self-defence, in case somebody tried to knock him off. Mm. <laughs> and one day he put his pistol on the little windowsill of a small window at the side of the front door and hopped upstairs to get something. And I thought, ooh, there's a pistol. <laughs> see, I, I picked his pistol up, which was loaded, I suppose. It must have yeah. been loaded. Uh, whether the safety catch was on or not, I wouldn't have had a clue. But I, I played with his gun when he came back down the stairs, and he was furious. <laughs> and he gave me a whacking, which oh, yeah. I, I didn't think I, I deserved. And no. then he, he went off in his car and disappeared off work. But that's the way it was. Every yeah. day he'd go off to work early in the morning in uniform, and I'd usually be in bed when he came back. And nobody talked to me about what he was doing, because they weren't allowed to. Mother wasn't supposed to know either. Mm. Of course, she did know, but he wouldn't talk to her about it. And then he had all these nervous breakdowns as well, you see. Poor fellow, he suffered so much from headaches. Do you think that, was that... Inevitable with the, with the job he was trying to do to try and get stuff that it was going to affect him mentally or just it was he prone to it? it was, no, it was because of Rover. Rover, Gosh. that was the big was problem. Yeah. Up until Rover took over the job, he was okay. Mm-hmm. Once they started to stuff around with the job, yeah. he got so upset yeah. that uh, I'm afraid his health deteriorated mm. terribly. But you see, the war was raging. And I was just a little fellow going mm. to school and all the rest of it. Didn't know what was happening. Didn't understand. Mm. Didn't understand why Daddy was so poorly. <laughs> Mother wouldn't really discuss things mm. with me. And these things weren't discussed then, were they? No, well, that's true. These things weren't discussed in those days. That's right, I suppose so. Mm. In later life, he would have then become aware, of course, of supersonic flight. And he did actually fly on Concorde, I think, in 76. I oh, mean, yeah. again, he must have just felt incredibly proud thinking back, well, I mean, did he all the time think to himself, well, if it weren't for me, this this wouldn't be happening? I never asked him that question. <laughs> so I, your guess is as good as mine. I don't know. I know he loved flying on Concorde. He mm. certainly regarded the aerodynamics of that airframe as absolutely fascinating. And mm. uh, the Olympus engines, um, well, uh, low bypass, they weren't particularly impressive but um 
Well, they're not, I think they're, the they're air not... intakes are quite impressive, yeah. weren't they? I think Sorry? The, 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 the air intakes, I think, were very impressive. Yes, the, the, that's right. The, the aerodynamics involved with the uh, um, variable geometry air intakes was yeah. very interesting and very clever. And the afterburners were his patent. Well, yes, oh. absolutely. Yes, of course they were. As I thought. <laughs> yes. And then, I mean, obviously, aviation was, was you know, huge in the Whittle household, and you went on to join the RAF. Yeah. With the name Whittle, does that mean you were welcomed with open arms? Um, people were a bit shifty with me. <laughs> I didn't realise, you know, I mean, when you're the son of somebody like that, and, 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 and he, father and mother separated in 1951, unfortunately, when I was still a schoolboy. Mm. So he went off to live in a bachelor apartment in Dolphin Square in London, and um, I would only see him in the holidays if he was kind enough to invite me for lunch or something. And I don't know, I left school. Well, I wasn't supposed to leave school. But in 1952, when I was 17, I got a flying scholarship. <laughs> so that's how I <laughs> got into flying. And I, it gave me 30 hours of government paid for flying, yep. 15 solo and 15 hours dual. And I got a private license whilst I was still a schoolboy or supposed to go Gosh. back to school and do my A-levels. But I thought, well, I'm going to be 18 in a little while. I said, I want to join the RAF. <laughs> so I went to the recruiting office in Birmingham and because uh, I was learning to fly at Elmden. It used to be called Elmden Airport, Birmingham International. <laughs> and I was learning on Tiger Moth. And I went to the recruiting office and there was a flight lieutenant, Shaw, with a handlebar moustache, <laughs> wings and gongs. Uh, not you know. Okay, I think he's still ribbons. there. <laughs> I think he's still there. <laughs> anyway, he he was so nice to me. Oh, hello. He says, "What's your name?" I said, "Ian Whittle, sir." He said, "Because I was in my uh, combined cadet force mm. uniform," and he said, "Good." He said, "Do you want to join the RAF?" And I said, "Yes, please, sir." And he said, "Good." He said, "How old are you?" Seventeen. Well, you can't join until you're eighteen. Yes, sir, I know. He said, "Why?" And he said, "Well, we'll sign you up now." And we'll get you organised for your aptitude tests and then you'll have to have a medical and then you should be able to get in as soon as you're 18. So he organised all that and I joined the RAF very shortly after my 18th birthday. It was a bit of a delay because of the medical or something. Mm -hmm. And um, uh, joined the RAF and did a short service commission. And uh, so I, that's how I ended up with Flying Training School, number two FTS, <laughs> at RAF Clunto in Northern Ireland. <laughs> And um, then went on to an operational squadron and flew hunters. So I flew, I flew meteors, vampires, and hunters. Well, uh, gosh. But don't forget the meteor, which you mentioned earlier on. Yeah. That engine was developed by uh, Major Holford uh, in collaboration with my father and Power Jets. Mm -hmm. And they built a damn good engine, yeah. the, what was known as the Goblin, mm -hmm. the H1. And that powered the, the vampire. It's a very good engine. Mm -hmm. With a very but a high diameter. What de Havilland's were very sensible. They said, okay, it's going to have a very high diameter because it's got a single-sided centrifugal compressor and so on. So they built the aeroplane around the engine. Yeah. Instead of building an aeroplane and trying to stick an engine on it, mm -hmm. they built the fat little short fuselage <laughs> of the meteor of the vampire yes. with around twin the... fuselage, twin uh, booms, the, yeah. twin booms holding up the empennage, and and it was a good little aircraft. Frankly, I've, flying both the Meteor and the Vampire, I preferred the Meteor. Mm -hmm. it, it didn't have quite such a high critical map number as the Vampire, but it was 
having two engines is a jolly good thing mm. for a start. Not that I ever had an engine failure anyway, but... <laughs> well, the early ones did. They, they had a terrible attrition rate, didn't they? Yeah, well, that was pilot attrition rate because of the uh, training was all wrong. Right. Uh, they were underpowered, of course, with even with the two W2 engines were low on power. But the asymmetric, they didn't cotton on to the asymmetrics of that that meteor and a lot of pilots were killed mm. because of, of poor training. Uh, they were cutting the engine instead of throttling it back mm. and having it there because you need it. Yeah. They were cutting the engine and the, 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 they were losing control. You had a very high what's called VMCA with a, uh, well, you know all about yeah. that, with, with, with a meteor. Uh, it's about 152, 150, anything between 150, depending on how strong your leg was yeah. on the rudder. <laughs> Because, yeah. you, you know, with full rudder, full chat on one engine, yeah. the asymmetrics were frightening on a meteor. And you had to keep your speed up. Mm. Well, I was taught that by my flying instructor when I went on to meteors. Mm -hmm. No messing about, yeah. Ian Whittle. You keep your speed up. <laughs> and I didn't forget that. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, Ian, as, as it must have been like for your father flying the meteor, you then fly the meteor. Yeah. With basically your father's invention yeah. powering you along. I mean, what was that like for you? I was too busy to worry about <laughs> Were you, did you too not? busy to worry about things like that. It was just another aeroplane and I was going to fly it properly. Really? I didn't think, oh, daddy invented the engine. Did you not? <laughs> really? No, I didn't. I just, uh, I was proud of him. But, yeah. you know, I couldn't talk about it to my pals in the RAF, really, because they would think I was boasting or something. Mm. So I used to not say anything very much. But unbeknownst to me, People did know who I was, mm. but they wouldn't speak to me about it. So I didn't know they knew. Yeah. And so I was running around in all innocence. And when I was at flying at um, operational conversion unit at Driffield in Yorkshire, I decided to go hunting, you see, because I like riding horses and stuff. So <laughs> I found a very friendly farmer with some hunters and I used to hunt with the Holderness Hunt. It was good fun. And But... The other chaps were saying, oh, that's Frank Whittle's son. He goes off hunting, you know. <laughs> He's one of those hunting, shooting and fishing people, you see. And they didn't really like me for that. Gosh. They thought that I was too, thought I was snooty. Uh, I suppose the other thing is you, you want to be, you know, a, a pilot in the RAF by your own merits. You don't want people to think, oh, he's only there because he's, Absolutely. he's Frank Whittle's son. In fact, I had to yeah. prove myself. Yeah. Ha had to be good enough to qualify. Mm -hmm. And there was going to be no, and they weren't going to mess about with me. No. If I had even slipped slightly, I think they'd said, "Right, you're out." Really. So, anyway, one day I fell off a horse, <laughs> and um, I was uh, hunting. And, and oh, and I had been made to hunt in my uniform because there was a group captain who used to hunt as well. You see, with his adjutant, and he always wore full uniform to hunt. You hat cap and blue freaks and all this. And he said, "Say your name, Whittle." I said, yes, sir. I was wearing civilian, ordinary mm -hmm. civilian clothes. And he said, uh, why aren't you wearing your uniform? I said, oh, well, sir, I, I've only got one W, I've only got one number one uniform. I said, well, I don't think I can hunt it. He said, you should wear your uniform. He said, show the flag. <laughs> yes, sir. So, of course, I had to wear my uniform, didn't I? So I did. I promptly, promptly fell off the horse and got my uniform messed up. <laughs> Green grass stains on the elbows. My poor Batman was having a terrible job <laughs> cleaning up my uniform for me. And I, I hurt myself, you see. When I managed to get home, I used to go to the hunt and we'd ride all the way out all day and hunt all day and ride all the way back to the stables in the darkness. And then I had a little motorbike and I got my motorbike and I got back to the mess, but I was hurt. Mm. 
went to bed, and the next morning I'd kind of seized up completely. When I got out of bed, I couldn't even go in and have a cup of tea or something. I was I could hardly walk. So I looked around my room for somebody to support me a bit so that I could get to Met Briefing, which was, I don't know, 7 o'clock in the morning or yeah. something. So I found I had an umbrella there, a rolled-up umbrella. So I went off in uniform to Met Briefing with an umbrella. Now, I was only doing that because I couldn't walk. And I was going to go and see the MO. I had to report sick, couldn't fly. I couldn't really walk, let alone fly. So... Um, I get to Met Briefing and everybody's going, oh, look, there's Frank Whittle's son with an umbrella in uniform. <laughs> oh, dear, what a funny chap. <laughs> so, uh, but I didn't know this. I was quite innocent of it. Mm. And I hobbled off to see the MO. He gave me a sick, sick chit or whatever it was. Mm-hmm. And I was off flying for two or three days. Uh, I didn't know anything. I didn't think of it anymore. And then when I joined an operational squadron, number 247 squadron, an RAF Odium, my first day at work there, I popped my suitcase in the officer's mess and I walked to go down to the squadron to report that I was there, mm-hmm. report for duty. And I, I, as I went through the hangar, I passed a squadron leader walking in the opposite direction, who I saluted very mm-hmm. smartly. I said, good afternoon, sir. And he said, oh, good afternoon. He said, who are you? And I said, uh, I'm Ian Whittle, sir. I'm posted to 247 Squadron. He said, oh, he said, oh, you're Whittle, are you? He said, um, what's this about you and an umbrella? <laughs> <laughs> and what I found out was, on the squadron, one of the guys who was with me, a very nice guy, but who's at Driffield, who'd seen me with the umbrella or something like that, <laughs> he'd gone into the squadron ahead of me by two or three weeks. And when they said, oh, we've got a chap called Frank, uh, we've got Ian Whittle, we've got Frank Whittle's son coming to join us. He said, oh, he's a... <laughs> he goes around in uniform with a rolled-up umbrella. And they all said, what? He does what? And they said, yeah, he goes, he, you know, he's, he's very, he's a poser, you oh, see. He goes around. Right. So my reputation when I joined the, the squadron was dead. I was in deep dwang. <laughs> and the squadron commander was, and neither of the two flight commanders wanted me. They would say, I won't have him. The other flight commander said, well, I'm not going to have him either. No. Eventually one of them said, oh, all right, I'll have him, but I'll give him a damn good check. Mm-hmm. in a meteor before we accept him on the squadron you know he would go up with me and put me through yeah. whatever um, so uh, you know my it was very difficult mm-hmm. for me because the, the, nobody told me yeah. what the score was nobody said what, what is this about you and a number <laughs> and they just sort of avoided me nobody really spoke to me and I, I felt awful for a while mm-hmm. and you think that's down to the Whittle name that they were just a little well, bit was, yeah, wary they were of quite it. wary. They thought yeah. I was just simply Frank Whittle's son and that's yeah. how I'd got the job. Yeah. And uh, uh, they didn't seem to see that I'd gone through conversion unit, been to Stratish Hall, done gunnery and all the rest mm. of it. And I was on the squadron on my own merits. Mm. But they didn't quite realise this. But then once they got to know me mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'd been checked out by the flight commander, Bob Poole, <laughs> um, flown a, in a Meteor Mark 7 twin two-seater and um, he, he found me OK and then set me off flying with the other chaps in formation and so on. Mm. And I was OK. And then after a few weeks... Oh, Trump, I'm, should I tell you this? Do you want to know funny stories? Yes, definitely. Well, Always. I got rather drunk one evening. I mean, <laughs> one shouldn't, should one. But <laughs> I, I went up with the chap who told them about me and the umbrella. He was a, a very nice guy called Dick Plackett, the late Dick Plackett, I'm afraid. But he was such fun, really nice guy. And he, 
he and I, he said to me one day, let's go out and have a drink together. I didn't know it at the time, and he was going to confess mm -hmm. that it was he who told him about the unravel. <laughs> so we went off, and we were in this pub in Farnham. I think it was the Seven Stars. And we both got completely ratted. And he told me that it was him who dropped the story about that. Oh, never mind, says I. And we were the best of pals, you see. But he drank rather too much beer. And we got into a bus, and we came back from Farnham to Odium in a bus. And I thought, oh dear, Plackett's going to disgrace himself in the bus because he looked very green. <laughs> anyway, we got off the bus. He didn't. And we got off the bus in an Odium. And the bus stops just outside a pub which was called King's Arms in those days. Mm -hmm. And um, as we got off the bus, our flight commander, Bob Poole, came out of the pub with his wife, who's a very good-looking, <laughs> blonde, lovely lady, wearing her mink coat. And he had parked at the curb his Armstrong Sidley Ooh. Sapphire car <laughs> with pre-select gearbox, beautiful uh, British racing green, leather upholstery, a gorgeous car. And he said, hello, chaps, like a lift back to the mess? Oh, no. Yes, <laughs> yes, you guessed it. Oh, no. Would you like a lift back to the mess? Yes, says I, yes, please. He said, I know, get in the back then. So there are only two doors on those sort of cars. Open the door. We get in the back, and I'm sitting next to Dick Plackett in the back. And we set off smooth away from the thing. And he's got his boxer dog sitting between him and his wife in her fur, you know, mink coat and everything like that. And we were halfway back to the mess when Plackett exploded. <laughs> no. No, no, he no. absolutely exploded <laughs> <laughs> all over the inside of the car, on the dog, on her fur coat, no. the upholstery, the, 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 the fit, every, oh dear, oh dear. So Bob Poole accelerated to the back of the mess and parked the car and the door swung open, the door, dog, big box of dog, <laughs> trod all over Mary Poole's lap and got out. And he was so cross, and I thought, that's it, my reputation on the squadron is gone forever. <laughs> but we know it's, it's, these things happen, and <laughs> eventually the car did get cleaned up. <laughs> oh, horrendous. Ian, just a final thought on your father. I've seen a number of interviews with him that were done around the 1980s, I, I guess, where he comes across as an extremely charming man. Do you think his contemporaries and peers would have seen him in that light? I mean, what sort of person was he as far as you were aware? Yeah, well, I mean, I do know he was terribly popular with his team at Power Jets. They worshipped him. They were absolutely, oh, they had a tremendous sense of loyalty and affection for him. Mm. And um, the team were very cohesive. It wasn't until after they got nationalised and things began to turn to worms that are one by one they began to seek employment elsewhere and then he left mm. but they formed a, 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 a kind of club or society if you like and they called themselves the reactionaries <laughs> and they kept going for many years until too many of them were falling off their perches and uh, he, he yeah he, he they liked him he was popular he was a good speaker mm -hmm. um, so, so, I think 
he was denigrated, of course, by the likes of Rover, who would pretend, oh, we can't get on with Frank Whittle, he's too difficult. And then mm -hmm. when he had a nervous breakdown, people say, oh, well, Frank Whittle, he's gone pot potty. Mm -hmm. Don't take any notice of him, he's round the bend. You see, mm -hmm. always trying to get rid of Frank Whittle so that they can all profit from the mm -hmm. development, you see. Um, in the end, did he profit from the, from the jet engine? No, not at all. Mm -hmm. Only in that he was generously rewarded. Yeah given an award, mm -hmm. a, a cash award. Right. Uh, other than that, he used to say to me, oh, he said, I wish I could get a few pennies for every jet engine that's in the air <laughs> yeah. now. Wow. Uh, yes. and, uh, jokingly. Yeah. Um, and, 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 yeah, no, he, 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 it was his idea. And, and look, he, it was his idea. He was, if you want to call him the inventor of the turbojet, mm -hmm. fair enough. It's, mm -hmm. it's not a bad accolade. Yeah. Uh, and, and it was long before the Germans. Uh, the Germans got the information through the patent that came through. Was, and not only the Germans, the first people to start developing a turbojet were the Swedes. Mm -hmm. Alf Lissholm in Sweden was starting a turbojet project in 1934, for heaven's sake. <laughs> um, the um, Russians started a turbojet development in 1937, one year after, if you could say one year after the Germans. Mm -hmm. So you've got the, the Swedes, the Germans, the... Um, Russians mm -hmm. and then the Americans because Nathan Price at Lockheed started a turbojet project and I think it was 1938 mm -hmm. but then when the W1 came across in 1941 they seemed to dismiss that and I don't know whatever happened to that project it just died a natural death and they just developed the Whittle engine and created the IA the General, it's mm -hmm. usually called the 1A but it's actually the IA mm -hmm. developed by General Electric um, and then other engine manufacturers got in on the act. Pratt and Whitney, of course. So his his design is is basically what has has gone forward of all the designs that were there. Yes, it's, I think all the, the turbojets that you fly in your big aeroplanes mm -hmm. today are they look for their antecedents. Yes. That gets back to the W two right. or W one, if you like. Yeah, mm. that's quite a legacy. Yes. It certainly is. Ian, thank you so much for your time. It's just wonderful to hear you talking about your father, <laughs> Frank Whittle. And yeah. um, may you keep flying for a long time, because you're still flying yourself, of course. Yes, I've still got a licence, but I'm struggling a bit to keep my licence. My Class 2 medical is under risk at the moment. I'm flying on what's called a LAPL, L-A-P-L. <laughs> but um, I am, yeah, I still fly. But... Well, tell them who you are. Pardon? Yeah. Well, you remind them who you are. Doesn't do any good at all. <laughs> uh, who? Who's Frank Whittle? Yes. We, when after he died, we went to St Paul's to see if we could perhaps have a memorial service there. And the brigad, who was a retired brigadier, who was running St Paul's, you know, mm -hmm. from this admin point of view, he said, "Who? It's Frank Whittle. Never heard of him." He said, "What? <laughs> yes." I'm a, I'm a, I spent many a, an hour at RAF Cranwell in, in the officers' uh, training there, and the main lecture theatre is called. Well, it has two names. One of them is the 200-seater sleeping bag because you always have <laughs> lectures in there straight after lunch and everyone's nodding oh, off. Yes. But it is Whittle Hall and yeah. will always be, you know, remembered by the military yeah. and hopefully by civil aviation. They've got and a Whittle else. room now in the, in the officer's mess oh, in the it? main, in the it's, old building. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wonderful. Ian, thank you so much. Oh, it's a pleasure. Well, our huge thanks to Ian Whittle for giving us so much of his time and for getting us as close as you could possibly get 
to the legendary Sir Frank Whittle. Wonderful stuff. Do keep an eye out for our next episode and indeed all our other podcasts. You can find them on our website, toplandinggear.com or wherever you normally get your podcasts from. And if you feel like subscribing to the pod, that would be just great. It is, of course, completely free. As ever, thanks for listening and bye for now.